I don't know if I told you, but I like Dhamma talks in the dark. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but just when you get home or something, listen to a talk in the dark. There's something quite moving about Dhamma and, and, and not being able to see the ordinary stuff, which is kind of the realm we're going to go into a little bit here. So someone wrote a note that said, um, would you elaborate on what we mean by free or being free in Buddhism? I know we mean free of suffering and uh, delusion, etc. But do we mean freedom in this life or a future life? Or what do we imagine free life to be? So that note kind of came to me because I'm going to talk about Nibbana. And then, uh, then they wrote back and said, regarding that question I asked about discussing what we mean by free, <laughs> I'm looking more for inspiration than instruction. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like me. <laughs> I'm more like inspiration than instruction. <laughs> So, I think I'm going to start with a. I'm going to start with a poem, and then a story, and then we'll move into a few suttas. Um, because the poem, I think, kind of helps point us in the right direction. It's not really a poem. It's by uh, Ian McCrory in his book uh, uh, around reflections of the Dhamma. So Ian says, sitting does not create truth. In case you didn't know that, sitting does not create truth. Meditation does not produce insight. Just as smelling a flower does not make it fragrant. The perfume of the rose is already there. We slow down to attend the unfolding and flowering of its nature Slowing down and attending to just this breath allows the reality of now to reveal its nature. Sitting still gives us the opportunity to witness the revealing of the truth. The moon appears only when the water is still. So there's this kind of stillness that I want to point to if we're going to talk about Nibbana. Um, and to help with that stillness, I want to tell you a story. So some of you know I was a single mother, two kids, two boys. <clears throat> they were as rowdy as I am. And I, uh, um, you know, being a single mother is a difficult process. You never really make enough money. And as soon as the end of the year would come at a place I was renting and they would say, we're going to raise the rent, I would have to look for another apartment. And so the boys and I pretty much moved every year for, I'd say, the bulk of their lives. We just moved every year. Every year I had to find another place that would be cheaper than the year before. And having young kids trying to move 
is uh, a difficult thing to do. They get in the way more than they do any helping. And so one day I came up with this grand idea. I have like thousands of books. Not anymore, but I used to be an avid book collector and reader, and I just had books everywhere. And so one day I decided to tell the boys that they had to take the books to the car, and that was their moving job. So I guess my youngest was probably three, and then the other one would have been about eight years old. So their job was taking the books to the car. And I noticed shortly after they started that they were running and bumping into each other and dropping books and throwing them in the car, and it became this competitive kind of forceful thing. But lucky for me, I had the wisdom that I needed them to slow down. I needed this process to take all day. (laughs) So I said, oh, my God. What are you doing? What are you doing with those books? You cannot take books like that. You have to do it with gentle and care. So I made him get all the books out of the car, bring them back in the house. And we had to practice the carrying the book process, picking up one book, holding it gently, taking it to the car, walking. And we practiced these instructions on how to move the book from the bookshelf to the car. And if I saw him getting a little rattled, I'd be like, stop at it. Slow it down. Take your time. One book at a time. It pretty much kept him occupied the whole day. Best thing I ever came up with. (laughs) So every year I would move and they would move the books. And I never had the kids in the way. So what was otherwise a very stressful kind of just it's always unknown and difficult to do to move, they managed themselves by carrying one book at a time. So I'm telling you that story because I think I've told some of you this. In a way, this is what I think the four foundations of mindfulness is doing to our ordinary mind. It's like kids. And it has to give that ordinary mind something to do. Steady, patient, still, and get out of the way so that you can move the bigger things, see the bigger things, understand something that's not necessarily known to you, that never will be known to you, that it's not something that you are going to learn, like you learned how to be, like I learned how to be a lawyer, you learned how to be a professional. We learn our jobs. We learn stuff. And that ordinary mind likes to learn. But the realm that we're going into, the space that practice is taking us, is into a place where it's unknown. And even though I moved every year, every single time I moved, it was unknown. It was different. So in a way, 
these foundations of mindfulness is training this kind of unworldly childlike mind to have something to do. Steady, stay here, carry the books gently, just carry books. So I want to start here with this sutta to help you see what I'm talking about. This is one of the first suttas I ever read on Nibbana. And it was a game changer. It's not like I didn't think about Nibbana. Before I read this sutta, I used to think about Nibbana all the time. But I always had this thought of what I would be like when I was awakened. How would it be? This idea of being without suffering and just this whole notion was this ordinary mind, what I call the ordinary mind, this egoic mind that knows stuff. That egoic mind is what I thought was going to help me understand what Nibbana was. And then one day I read this sutta. It's very short and it's called The Tip of the Fingernail. So I'm going to read the whole thing to you. It says, I have heard on one occasion the Buddha was staying at Savati at Jeddah's Grove in Anandapindaka's uh, monastery. And then the Buddha, picking up a little bit of dust with the tip of his fingernail, said to, said to the monks, you know, his practitioners, what do you think? Which is greater? The little bit of dust I have picked up with the tip of my fingernails or the great earth? That's a trick question. (laughs) The great earth is far greater, said the monks. The little bit of dust that the Buddha has picked up with the tip of his fingernail is next to nothing. It's not a hundredth, a thousandth, a one hundred thousandth. This little bit of dust the Buddha has picked up with the tip of his fingernail when it's compared to the great earth. It's nothing. So the Buddha says, in the same way, for a practitioner who is consummate in view, an individual who has broken through the suffering and stress that is totally ended and extinguished is far greater. That which remains in the state of having at most seven remaining lifetimes is next to nothing. It's not a hundredth, a thousandth, a one hundred thousandth when compared to the previous mass of suffering. That's how great the benefit is of breaking through the Dhamma, that's how great the benefit is of obtaining the Dhamma eye. When I first read that, this, this was, a, in my mind, it was a game changer. I'm going to tell you why. One, he didn't talk about behavior at all. He's not talking about, are you nice? Are you good people? Do you, are you, you know, do you open the door? I mean, are we nice, good people? Very generous. He's not talking about that behavior. He's talking about somebody who is commiserate, uh, consummate in view. 
He's talking about right view, right understanding, wisdom. And he's talking about that pointing towards this possibility of Nibbana. The second thing is the being that he's talking about who has this fingertip of suffering is not even enlightened because this is someone who has seven remaining lifetimes, whatever that is. He's not even at the end or they are not at the end. And I had never heard this term Dhamma I, this understanding that you could open a level of perception and that in that perception there would be freedom. So this, I just begin to change the way I approached the practice. All of my practice was no longer about my behavior. And I begin to see the path a little differently. Because we, to me, in the way we do this insight tradition, we have the path upside down. And I think it's why sometimes we struggle so much. Because what we cultivate is this stillness, samadhi, concentration. That's what everybody is wanting. The samadhi, concentration, that's what's going to lead me to nibbana. And the stiller I get, we've even seen some moments, and you're like, that's it. This is what I want. This is where I'm going. But the stillness in the Eightfold Path is actually at the end of the path. It's not at the end. If you think of the Eightfold Path as a circle that's moving you through, it starts with wisdom. It starts with right view, right intention. And you set your view, you set your attention, your action will follow. This right action, right speech, right livelihood begins to follow on the heels of that shifting the view, tuning the view. And then this right mindfulness, right effort, right concentration starts getting stiller and stiller and stiller. And the stiller you get, the more you see what's actually happening. And the more you see, the more your conduct adjusts, the more your conduct adjusts, the stiller you get. And there's this wheel, like a motor that gets started. And when we ramp that motor up, then we start moving towards something. So in effect, if we come in thinking that it's all about how concentrated I could get, I'm going to speak for me, How concentrated could I get? I'm not even thinking about my behavior. I just want to be concentrated. Concentrated, concentrated, concentrated. That was it. And all I kept doing was trying to force myself to be concentrated. And I couldn't, I never even adjusted the view. I'm just trying to get concentrated. I know what it feels like. I felt it before. I should, I know how to do this. And it would take me forever to get to this next, I just thought about it, read this next, uh, this would be me. We sit through the storms of pain and anguish. We push on 
into the gale force winds <laughs> of our resistance. Oh my God, this is so me. Push on! <laughs> I don't care what's happening. I'm not going anywhere. We strive to untangle these karmic knots of our karmic inheritance until we faint from exhaustion and finally give up. (laughs) It is only then when we see we can't do it that some insight and some peace arises. For the more we try, the stronger becomes our enemies. The more we sweat and strive, the deeper we sink into the quicksand of our own craving. We must make an effortless effort. We have all the time in the world, but there's not a minute to lose. To reach the final goal, we must run fast, but never be in a hurry. Can't be done. But we can't do it, but it can be done. This is what we are kind of faced with here when we come into a practice that starts us out in this meditation. And so these long retreats are the kind of like almost our first opportunity to begin to get to the point in Ian's uh, reflection that we have to give up. And finally, when we begin to give up, something shifts, something else can happen. So this happened with me when I read this sutta was the first time I began to think maybe this isn't about behavior at all. Maybe this is about view. Maybe this is about how I am perceiving something. And we've been pointing to it all along. And all that pointing we've been doing has really brought us into this kind of seeing that a lot of you are sharing. So here's something else that the Buddha gave this Dhamma talk. He gave several Dhamma talks on Nibbana, and this is one little short one that he gave. Um, He was still at Dananda Pindaka's monastery, and he was giving a talk on Nibbana. And when he looked at the bhikkhus, the monastics, his, his uh, people, he, he saw that they were intent on listening to the Dhamma. He saw this. And when he realized the significance of this, he uttered on this occasion this what he called inspire, what, what is written as an inspiring utterance. He says, There is practitioners, a not born a not brought into being, a not made, a not conditioned. If, practitioners, there are no not born, not brought into being, not made, not conditioned, no escape would be discerned from what is born, brought into being, what is made or conditioned. But Since there is a not born, a not brought into being, a not made, a not conditioned, therefore an escape is discerned. And it is discerned from what is born, what is brought into being, what is made, and what is conditioned. 
So uh, to me, what he's saying is, it's actually in our view as we practice that we are able to see Nibbana, that we are able to open or realize this, what he called, or what we have translated as a Dhamma eye. And that's what we're kind of moving towards gradually. So I don't think I can tell you about Nibbana myself personally, to be honest. I have no idea how to come up with words. I've tried to think about it. I've listened to talks before where they describe what it is. But to me, it's so outside the realm of what I would think of as words. And I know those of you that have been in meetings with us, there are, you've had experiences that as soon as you try to put some words to it, it kind of sullies the whole thing. And you're like, wow, I had this moment that I was sitting there, and then it just was very still. And I saw, it's like it was very still, and I saw, and you're trying to explain what you saw. I mean, I saw outside. And yet, it is this profound moment that doesn't have any words that you can actually articulate. So if I bring in a lot of words about what Nibbana is, the part of the mind that needs to just carry the books to the car will try to recreate that. So that part of the mind, we're going to leave that to just working on their books and they are not part of this conversation. I want to talk to the other part of us. What we could think of as a more embodied mind. So this embodied mind is different than our ordinary mind. Our ordinary mind, it needs everything to be as it knows. It is not comfortable with the unknown. It is not comfortable with the unfamiliar. It is not comfortable with that which is uncertain. It, it, it is comfortable when we're in familiar surroundings, certainty, and we know what's going on. It feels very comfortable. So when we first come on retreat, and we begin to cultivate this stillness, we begin to cultivate this kind of knowing energy. And what's happening, that you can see it more clearly on long retreats, which is another reason why I'm glad Brian said to start with day one. Because it takes almost up until like three weeks in to a retreat before you actually are in the realm to begin to see things. You have to actually get this uh, ordinary mind to have something else to do. And some of you talk about it. You talk about it in, in the practice meetings that you see your habit patterns, like we talked about with dependent origination. You see your habit patterns, but you're not really caught in it. You see it. Sometimes you're in it. Most times you kind of see it, but you're not really getting all caught in it. And when we get to this place, this is when we can begin to see what is oftentimes called 
transcendental dependent origination. It's the origination that moves outside of suffering. And this is where this process that I'm going to talk about tonight is how we move into Nibbana. So wherever Nibbana is, I want to talk about the process of how we move into it. There is a way. Well, let me first just go to what this transcendental, uh, what it is. So just like you have dependent origination, starts with ignorance, moves through consciousness and the mental formations, name and form. You move through the sense doors, feeling tones, this contact, craving, clinging, becoming, birth and death, get to suffering. You can begin to see that. You can actually see yourself going through some of these cycles of dependent origination. You can see how conditioned it is. You can see that it has nothing to do do with you. And even if you try to get out of it, you can't. You see the conditionality of it. And we can, in this place, in this moment, we can trust this is conditional. We believe that. And I want to encourage you to trust that the path to Nibbana is equally conditional. It's equally natural, lawful, happens in the same motion. It's not you or I that's doing it. It is the nature of an embodied mind unfolding itself. So from this state of suffering, difficulty, contentment, I mean, uh, faith arises, and from our faith comes contentment. And from our contentment comes joy, or this sense of being wrapped or interested in it. And from that joy kind of rapture comes calmness. From the calmness comes tranquility. From tranquility comes concentration. From this concentration, we begin to have this wisdom to see the truth. And from that wisdom to see the truth comes disenchantment. From disenchantment comes dispassion. From dispassion comes this letting go, this kind of releasing. And from that letting go, releasing, comes this wisdom to see cessation. And from this scene of cessation, we can come into Nibbana. Whatever that state is, it is in the realm of where cessation can be seen with a still, calm mind. All of this is very, very lawful. The Buddha was very clear that it's not something that any one of us do. He said that one who is dependent is wavering, has this kind of wavering or wobbliness. And one who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. And there being calm, there is no yearning. There being no yearning, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. 
there being no passing away or arising, there is neither here nor there nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So I want to take you a little bit through this dependent origination in a way that to help put some framing around it because it's easy for us to hear this and say, that's where I want to go. I think I used to just hear the, this, just this is the end of stress. And I heard something like concentration, so it's like that's where I'm going, and once I get concentrated, I'll be at the end of stress. That's what I had it all planned out. So I want to try to help you see how and why that ordinary thinking mind doesn't work in this kind of a path. So if we think about it, when you came on retreat, you were already in suffering. You're already in the world of suffering. So you're already in the path of dependent origination. We need to practice steadying ourselves, steadying ourselves in this faith um, just to help us trust what we see. And gradually, this reinforcement of the establishment of the four foundations of mindfulness We steady. The boys are taking the books to the car. Mind is steadying itself, steadying itself. It's almost the hardest thing as a teacher to get someone to please just steady yourself. Don't worry about it. Just keep steadying yourself. But it's like, but there are all these things coming up. Steady yourself. Steady, steady. We like want to run the books to the car and race and compete and see who can do it. It's like, no. Slow down. Steady, steady, steady. And questions come up like, but how am I, am I, am I bypassing? Shouldn't I be with this difficulty? Steady yourself. And finally, as the room, you can almost tell it in the whole room, begins to steady ourselves. And we have this steadier willingness to see. We haven't even got into transcendental yet. We need the faith just to steady ourselves, steady ourselves, steady ourselves. Buddha says... um, Remain with your minds well established in the four establishments of mindfulness. Don't let the deathless be lost to you. So even in this establishing of the four foundations of mindfulness, the deathless is what Nibbana is called sometimes. So he's saying the deathless is already around you when we're establishing the four foundations of mindfulness. So we steady our attention. On this, Uh, he says, practitioners, remain with your mind. Remain with your minds well established in these four establishments of mindfulness. Don't let the deathless be be lost to you. Don't let it be lost to you. It's already here. So in this coming on retreat, we begin to steady ourselves. And finally, there's a bit of stability The mindfulness is gradually being established. What we are establishing, Buddha said, is that mindfulness brings protection to the mind, and the mind finds safety 
in this mindfulness. So what we're actually doing is establishing a place for our ordinary mind to rest and not get in the way while we open to something else. Because what we are about to open to is unknown, it's unfamiliar, and it's uncertain. And that in and of itself is going to trigger our ordinary mind to get panicky. So we establish this mindfulness, protect the mind, get it steady. And then we begin to see things. Many of you see things. You begin to see your conditions and this faith uh, begins to kick in at a different level now here. This faith now that your mindfulness is established, you can stay here, present moment, you know where you are. Now this faith can carry you into a different, uh, a different understanding. It can carry you into a different perception. Faith contentment, this joy and calmness, these first four are kind of like where you get when you have a sense of seeing dependent origination, seeing the suffering itself, but you're not really caught in it anymore. You see it, but you're content. You're okay. I see what's happening. And in in the Buddha, what, what am I favorite suttas, he, he describes this so well that we are steadying ourselves. We're not, we're not trying to fix who we are. Don't worry about that behavior. It's not actually happening. You're sitting there thinking. You are not in that argument. You are not saying anything to anybody. You are just sitting here. And all that drama is paying out in the head. So don't get caught in this idea that you need to fix anything. There's nothing to be fixed. The faith is just to help cultivate contentment, this kind of settled back, being with the moment as it is. Having joy more in the interest of what's happening, the knowing that you're here with it, nothing to be done, and this um, ultimate sense of, calmness around it. Just It's okay if you see aversion. It's okay if you see doubt or any of the hindrances. You are not entangled in them. You are just seen. And the Buddha says in this really sweet sutta that uh, I read often, because this was, I, 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 to be honest, for a person that came from trauma like me, there's always this kind of, but, okay, not me, but not me. Everybody else can go there, but not me. Because I'm, I'm like Pigpen, if you guys know uh, Peanuts. Pigpen has like all the little dirt around him all the time. And wherever he goes, he leaves little piles of dirt. And that's this idea I had that no, I'm not... I'm always carrying an extra load of dirt everywhere, so this can't possibly be about me. But when the Buddha is talking in this sutta, he's not talking about where you came from or who you are. He said, for a person endowed with virtue, 
consummate in virtue, there is no end, there is no need, sorry, for an act of will. May freedom from a ro- of remorse arise in me. It is the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. So what it means is when we set this retreat with the precepts and we begin to keep the precepts, we are setting the tone right there for being virtuous, right? We're just creating that space. Just keep the precepts as we go along. And there's no requirement for you to beg or have some kind of act of will by force. Can I be endowed with virtue? You don't need to. You don't, can I be free from remorse? You don't need to. You connect with the precepts. You follow the schedule. You're tucked in to this container that's designed to help you already have freedom from remorse. And a person who's free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. Why? Because it is the nature of things that joy will arise in a person who's free from remorse. So when we see all of this kind of uh, um, the things that are happening in our mind, if we get trapped in it as if it's saying something about you rather than just saying something about the human condition that you happen to be seeing, then you get caught in the remorse. But if you see it as I am seeing the nature of dependent origination, its human conditions, you then will begin to be free of that remorse and you will find this joy or contentment. And he said for a joyous person or for a rapturous person, there's no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. Why? Because it is the nature of things that for a rapturous person grows a serene serenity in the body. So this joy brings with it a calmness that's going to come. It's not coming because I force myself to let go of things that I really am feeling bad about, but I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But really in the back, I'm feeling bad about it. It comes from the natural unfolding of steadying ourselves. I've had many moments of sitting on the cushion when I did not feel freedom from remorse. Something would come up and it would bother me. But what I begin to notice is when I'm no longer caught in that, when I finally, it stops bothering me, for whatever reason, it stops bothering me, I come right back to my calmness, right back to the stillness, right back to the peace, and I just keep practicing. So when we get to this capacity to be still, steady, with what we see, we are moving into the second four kind of places. This tranquility, concentration, this wisdom to see, and disenchantment. And there's a lot of that 
in the room. And I would say that this place here, this tranquility, this concentration, this uh, ability, this wisdom to see things, and this disenchantment, it is not, we are not in the realm of anything you're doing. In fact, if you're trying to make yourself not get caught in some of these stories, then you're still needing to stay with the faith and contentment. Stay with that faith and contentment. See if you can gather yourself. Just be um, like trusting in that. Can I just be content being here in this moment? And seeing if you can just steady yourself with it, whatever it is, unpleasant, whatever you're seeing, steady yourself. But as you start noticing this contentment, more contentment, this kind of happiness, contentment, happiness, I seem to just be present. I don't have to do nothing. I don't want anything to be different. I'm steadier. I'm okay. You're moving over into this possibility for tranquility, for this sense of being able to see the truth of things, uh, and this, um, this concentration and disenchantment. You don't do this. I should say that again, just in case some of you out there are like me. You don't do this. In fact, the only reason this middle section and the rest can happen is because you have to be willing to have your ordinary mind moving books. That's all it's doing. Steady, paying attention, establishing mindfulness, whatever your anchor is, with the anchor, letting it stay there with that anchor. And then if you notice that you get caught in something, go back to that anchor, steady with the anchor, keep that ordinary mind part occupied so that when we move into these stiller places of tranquility and this ability to see, you are not seeing you, if I can say it that way. You are seeing human condition. Give it some other name. Call it Tuary. Oh, I'm seeing Tuary's light, not my light. Tuary's light. Okay, I can take it. Because I guarantee you, I'll probably have seen all that mess in my own sense anyway. So I'm not ashamed of it anymore. So give it to me. You're seeing Betty's life, David's life, Lewis's life. You're seeing anybody. Call it anything. It's not you. It's in the conditionality that we need to see it. And the more we can see this conditionality, the more we will get disenchanted with its plugs. Your ordinary mind will always be enchanted by it because as soon as it sees something, it needs to fix it. So we need that mind over here so we can see this human nature, this human conditioning. And the more you begin to see the human conditioning, very still, very steady, we can move into unknown. I mean, it's already unknown, but now we're really going to move into some unknown territory. And to me, this 
this shows up in our practice in a very strange way. You start getting afraid of where you're at. Not sure I want to keep going. Meditation all of a sudden has this sense of your mind is almost not sure you want to keep down this path because I have no idea where the mind's going. I have no idea what the mind knows. I have no idea what's happening here. And that kind of trepidation, if you can see it as uh, the boys are playing with the books and we need them to go over here, (laughs) just move the books. You can feel it, right? You can just sit in your seat. Okay, nothing's happening. I'm just sitting in my seat. I can feel my feet on the floor. I can feel myself sitting. This, this sense of sound, moment, knowing where you are. Feel into that present moment because the present moment is where you're going to build this trust and this faith in going into what is otherwise unknown places, unknown experiences. We're moving into this territory where disenchantment, we're no longer enchanted by our little stories that we see ourselves doing. We're not caught in that anymore. And we're moving into this dispassion, letting go, releasing, and uh, this wisdom that can see cessation. And that wisdom that can see cessation can lead us into Nibbana. Here, it gets difficult. For those of us that have been in these places before, two retreats ago, the retreat I had last year, you think you know where you're going, but you don't. You have to let go of that. It's never the same. Never, ever, ever. I've had these spectacular spaces and time, and I just knew that's where we're going. And once I get to that spectacular place again, then I'll know where I'm at. It never comes. It has never come. I've been practicing 30 years, and it's never the same spectacular place ever. So this idea that because you were in this zone before, you know where you're going, you do not know. you got to let it be completely unknown territory, completely unknown. Every time has to be unknown. And so to be in this unknown territory can be difficult. But the Buddha was clear that if you, for a person who has disenchantment, you don't have to say, may I have this passion. It's coming. There is no All of these places move into each other. There's another sutta here. This is what he's pointing to. He says, just as when the rain pours in heavy drops and crashing thunder on the upper mountains, the waters flowing down along the slopes fills the mountain crevice and the rifts and the gullies. It fills up all of that. It fills it up, fills it up, fills it up till it's overflowing. And then as it overflows, 
When they are full, it overflows and it fills the little ponds. And when those little ponds get filled up, when they are full, they overflow and it begins to move into the big lakes. And then when the big lakes get filled up, they get overflowing. And when they get overflowing, they move into the little rivers. The little rivers get filled. They move into the big rivers. When the big rivers get filled, the water overflows and moves into the great ocean. This is the way this process goes. It's not any one of us doing it. It moves on its own once it's started. But we can interrupt it trying to go to where we were before. And the mind is like, what is she doing? Where is she going? Because I don't know what she's talking about. And I keep thinking this is the way I got to go. The mind is not, this is different territory. It's not in the known. Wherever you go, it has to always be unknown, unfamiliar, uncertain, always. And when you're there, you can begin to explore. So what I have found is that I would get to these moments when I could tell that there was something different, something, some other, you know, I've sat and, and the meditation is coming to these places. Some of you guys have talked about these. You get afraid, nervous. I don't even know why. I'm just scared of something that I don't know. And this is where it's difficult. And you have to rely to me on the practice of the conditionality of Nibbana. And trust in this kind of contentment in the present moment. So when I was, I've been in these places and I've come up with all kinds of ways. I mean, one way I've had a mantra that I would say, just here, I'd say no past, no future, no self. Just here, just now, just this, right? No, no past, no future, No self, just here, just now, just this. And I would say this mantra to myself, steadying me here in this unknown place. What I know is, not going to get lost in some past thoughts, like Bonte was saying, rehearsing. I'm not going to, or remembering, not going to get into some planning in the future where I'm going. I'm not going to just wander into thinking, just right here, just right here, just right here. Steady myself with whatever you're seeing doesn't have to be pointed at some object. It can be anything. Just this willingness to sit here with whatever is arising. And just having this kind of mantra, this steadying ourselves with the present moment. There is nothing for you to figure out. There is nothing for you to remember You don't have to know where you're going. You don't know where you're going. But this embodied mind, which is wiser, and it's been around forever. It knows where it's going. But usually, it doesn't say anything because it's stuck behind 
uh, ordinary mind that runs everything, knows everything. I know what to do. I know how to fix it. Okay, let me tell you what to do. And it doesn't know this part. So the only way we can maneuver through, we want to get still and we want to get settled. But the only way we can really maneuver through it is we have to hold it in this sacred container. Sacred container, I don't know. I'm not supposed to know. But I know where I'm sitting. I know I'm walking. I know I'm eating, drinking tea. I know what I'm doing. And leave your, let your four foundations keep you steady when it starts getting confusing. I think sometimes our ordinary way of being in life is so controlled and so absolute that we think that is the only way for safety. That is the only way that I'm going to be safe and protected. And for a long time, I would not have anything to do with my body because I thought it was the cause of most of my difficulties. And the idea, what I think I was looking for, was a way to transcend my body into something else that was going to be, I was going to turn into Susie, not going to be me anymore, that somehow I could get out of that. But actually... This practice is taking you more and more and more and more and more into you, into this body, into the truth of who you are. And the reason why it's unknown is because we don't know this body. We don't know it. We don't have a relationship with it. But gradually, as you begin to feel into a relationship with the body, you begin to realize that your body knows where to go more than you do. You don't have to know where to go because you start trusting this body. I want to leave you with, I wanted to read the whole sutta because I love it so much, but I am not going to do that. I'm just going to read the last part of it called, this is a sutta called uh, Nagara Sutta. It's called The City. And in this sutta, the Buddha is talking about to his uh, monastics, he's telling them how he went through this path as as an unenlightened bodhisattva, how he went through this path and began to ask himself, you know, um, just the whole dependent origination and how it leads into um, this transcendental Uh, dependent origination, how the suffering itself is what led him to uh, faith and led him to this whole other awakening. We don't awaken against our suffering, in spite of our suffering. We awaken in it, 
It's right there when you are suffering. When you think you're suffering, that's when you need faith. And in that faith, that's when the doors begin to open. Contentment, calm down, settle here for a moment, get some interest and joy with just being here. Doesn't have to be any other way. We don't need the special things. We just need to be content right here, settled. And that contentment is going to lead to a joy. And that joy is going to lead to a calmness. And that calmness is going to lead to tranquility. And on and on and on, all the way to Nibbana. All the way. It will happen. Not maybe somebody. It will happen. Because you don't need an act of will. It comes on the heels of each link. The same way suffering comes on the heels of each link. So this is the last thing I want to talk about. This is after the Buddha described his finding this, seeing it. Then he said, It is just as if a person traveling along a wilderness track were to see an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled by people of former times. And they would follow it. And in following it, they would see an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by people of former times, complete with parks and groves and ponds, walled off and delightful. And they would go and address the elders and say, um, asking them to rebuild the city. And the elders would rebuild the city so that later, at some later date, the city would become powerful, rich, and well-populated, fully grown and prosperous. In the same way, practitioners, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of former times. And what is this ancient path, this path, this ancient road traveled by the rightly self Awakened ones of former times, just this noble eightfold path. Right view, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That is the ancient path, the ancient road traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of former times. I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of aging and death. Many of you have seen this. Direct knowledge of the origin of aging, origination of aging and death. Direct knowledge of the cessation of aging and death. Direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of aging and death. I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of birth and becoming, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the six sense medias, name and form, consciousness, direct knowledge of the origination of consciousness, direct knowledge of the cessation of consciousness, direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of consciousness, I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of fabrications, direct knowledge of the origination of fabrications, direct knowledge of the cessation of fabrications, 
direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessations of fabrications. Knowing that directly, I have revealed it to monks, nuns, male lay followers, female lay followers, and neither male nor female lay followers, so that this holy life has become powerful, rich, detailed, well-populated, and widespread, proclaimed among celestial and human beings. So, let's sit for a moment here. This is not a path your ordinary mind will understand or figure out. This is a path designed for you to trust your bodies who are older, wiser, from ancient times, and they know the way. Thank you so much for your kind, kind attention. We'll have some walking here, and then we'll come back and find a chant to go along with all this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.